Let's pray. Father, our, our hearts are full this morning. Um, just hearing the testimony of Michael and Savannah, and then also Peter and Catherine, and it's so wonderful to be hearing what you're doing in the world today, not just here in Irvine, but all around in uh, North Carolina and France, and we know many other places in the world today as well. And so we want to lift our hearts up to you right now. We pray that you would open our spirits to hear your word that you would use it to challenge us and to bring us to a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. My heart is full. I almost feel like we should go ahead and have communion and close service. (laughs) But uh, I think that this passage actually is very appropriate and it fits very well with what we've already heard and what we've already sung and how we've prayed. And so I'd like us to just Spend a little bit of time. Uh, please bear with us. It's, it is a full morning. We're going to also celebrate communion, so we have that to look forward to as well. But it's good to come together again and worship as God's family. Uh, we've been looking at the first chapter, the Gospel of John, written by one of Jesus' earliest disciples, the Apostle John, son of Zebedee, the brother of James. James and John were fishermen from the town of Bethsaida which literally means fisher town, literally means town of fishermen. I want to thank Pastor Gary for letting me um, fill the pulpit the last couple of weeks. It's been a blessing to share with you. I hope I've done an adequate job of teaching from God's word. It's not easy following in Pastor Gary's footsteps. Those are pretty big shoes to fill, but I've done my best that I could. When John wrote this gospel, he was probably in his later years. Uh, Church tradition tells us that John lived in exile on the island of Patmos well into his 90s. But when John became a disciple, he was probably a very young man, maybe in his 20s or maybe even earlier than that. In any case, it's interesting to note that one of the telling marks of John's authorship is almost uh, his persistent refusal to acknowledge himself in any of his writings. And this is true of the Gospel of John as well. So we move from the testimony of John the Baptist in the last two weeks to the calling of Jesus' first disciples. Do you ever wonder how things might have been different had Jesus come to the earth in, in present day versus the time frame that he did? Would his calling the disciples have been any different? Would the advent of technology and contemporary life have impacted the way he went about doing ministry? Imagine, if you will, Jesus calling his disciples today with the internet and smartphones and social media. Would Jesus have utilized a smartphone? Would he have texted people? Oh, look, I've got a text. It's from Jesus. (laughs) Follow me. Hmm. Would he have posted selfies on Instagram or sent out an inspirational message via Facebook? Would he have recorded his messages and sermons on YouTube and tried to gain a following as much as possible, even drawing enough people so that he could monetize his channel? Would Jesus have gone viral? Kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? It might have been a little bit easier to get folks' attention in the first century, don't you think? 
Uh, fewer distractions, more interpersonal relationship. I think it's a good thing that Jesus came in the flesh when he did. Who knows what impact our hyperattention deficit culture would have been, had on his discipleship calling. But regardless, I'm confident that Christ in his fully human, fully God form would have been able to break through whatever obstacles and distractions that we face to reach into the human heart and draw us close to him because people are still people after all, right? We all have the same needs and wants. We all still crave attention, which is just a cry for love, isn't it? And isn't that what social media is, a cry for attention and love? But I also trust in Christ's sovereign will for humankind, that he knows what's best for us, and that even with all the distractions, Christ would have found a way to break through, maybe even utilize social media in some way. Who knows? This morning, I think we will see that when Jesus calls, the first thing that happens is that he invites us into relationship. He invites us into relationship. We see, starting in verse 35, that John the Baptist continues with his mission of pointing people to Christ in very much the same manner. As he sees Jesus the next day walking by, John proclaims once again, Behold the Lamb of God. And two of John's, John the Baptist's disciples go and start following Jesus. Now, who are these two? Who are these two, two, two disciples? Well, one is named, and that is Andrew, and the other is unnamed. Commentators presume that this unnamed disciple is probably indeed the Apostle John, the writer of this gospel. Why do they think this? Well, because as I said, John had the habit of not naming himself in the narrative, not talk, taking credit for events and remaining anonymous. Maybe this was his way of kind of staying under the radar and being humble. But you'll also note that there are some very specific facts, the time of day, for instance, that may point to the fact that this was an eyewitness account, hence the prevailing thought that this was indeed the Apostle John as the unnamed disciple. In any case, these two are drawn to Jesus, and noticing them following him, Jesus turns and asks, what do you want? What do you seek? What do you seek? Isn't that what God continues to ask us today? What's your life about? What are you pursuing? What is your purpose? What do you seek? That is the eternal question for all humankind. What is it that drives you today? What do you seek? Curiously, the two ask him where he is staying. They want to know more about this Jesus. This is their way of entering into his world. Jesus responds with a simple three-word answer. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. Start this journey with me. Come and see for yourself what life with Jesus is like. Come and see. Try it on for size. See if you're called into this relationship. There's no demand. There is no entrance fee. There is no test. There is no prerequisite. It is a simple come and see. Jesus, ever the gentle, meek God-man, simply says, Come and see. 
It's an invitation. It's an invitation to come and enter into a new relationship. And so they do. They hang out with Jesus all day long until the 10th hour, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Just about time for them to leave, to head home. But also just enough time for them to get a good whiff of who this Jesus, this Lamb of God might be. And it excites them. It excites Andrew enough to go and tell his brother, Simon. Now we begin to see the result of John the Baptist's ministry and mission coming to fulfillment. By simply reflecting the glory of Christ, by simply pointing people to Jesus, the ripple effect of this introduction is like a pebble being dropped in a pool of water. And the waves of that pebble begin to move outward and begin to impact all those around all those around. It's like the Fabergé shampoo commercial that was in the, on TV in the 80s. I don't know if you remember that. Most of you guys weren't even a twinkle in your parents' eye at that time. <laughs> but Heather Locklear claimed that the shampoo was so good that she told two friends about it, and they told two friends, and they told two friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. The ripple effect starts with Andrew's brother, Simon, whom Andrew brings to Jesus. Andrew tells Simon, we have found the Messiah. Not we think we found the Messiah or this is possibly the Messiah, but a definitive statement of fact. This is amazing seeing how they've only spent the good part of one day with the man. And when Simon comes to meet Jesus... Jesus gives Simon a new name. He gives Simon a new name. In Aramaic, Cephas. In Greek, Petros, or Peter, which translated means the rock. This was well before Dwayne the Rock Johnson, by the way. <laughs> but I wonder if Dwayne owes Peter some royalties. Well, this brings us to the second point of when Jesus calls, and that is, he gives us a new identity. When Jesus calls, he gives us a new identity. In the Bible, God often gave people new names. This would help them gain a new identity. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Jacob became Israel. Saul became Paul. Sometimes this gave new, new or greater meaning to their names and identities. Sometimes it changed their identity completely into something greater and beyond the name that they had been given. It launched them into a new sphere of influence. Did you know you have a new identity in Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Are you feeling unloved? Jesus calls you beloved. Are you an, a spiritual orphan? Jesus invites you to be adopted into the family of God. For Simon, 
the rugged fisherman from the town of Bethsaida, he would become Peter, the rock of the first century church. Now, this was just the starting point for Simon Peter. He would go on to have many exploits with Jesus, including denying him three times in the courtyard of of Pilate before the cock crowed three times. We think of Peter as a headstrong, shoot-from-the-hip kind of guy. In one breath, he would proclaim Jesus to be the Son of God, and in the next moment, Jesus would be saying to him, Get behind me, Satan. Peter suffered from the eternal foot-in-mouth disease. So where is this rock that Jesus is talking about? Well, perhaps Jesus is speaking into Simon what he would become. Peter, although full of life and willing to take risks, would eventually need to be redeemed by Christ three times to account for the three denials that Peter uttered on that fateful day. Peter would later be integral in starting and building the church. Even in the face of great opposition, Peter would stand firm. Church tradition has it that Peter died a horrible death, being crucified upside down, an execution of his own choosing because he didn't feel like he was worthy enough to be crucified in the same way that his Lord was. When Jesus calls... He gives us a new identity, a new future, a new purpose. We we become new creations in him. The third point about Christ's calling is that he challenges us to discipleship. He challenges us into discipleship. The next day, it says in verse 43, as Jesus was leaving town, he found a man named Philip and said two words to him. Now, just two words. Follow me. Follow me. What Jesus was saying to Philip here is more than a simple command to follow Jesus wherever he would go. It meant to follow Christ as a disciple, to become a follower of Christ, to learn of him, and to learn from him, and to emulate him. Philip was from the same town as Andrew and Peter, Bethsaida, Fisher Town which means he was probably also a fisherman by trade. In following after Jesus, Andrew and John and Peter and Philip would likely be giving up their trades as fishermen. These were the men to whom Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They went from fishermen to fishers of men. So while gaining a new identity, in some ways they were losing parts of their old lives, their old selves. The old is passing away and the new is coming. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it mean exactly? What does it mean to be in discipleship? In his book, Following the Master, Dr. Mike Wilkins, a professor of mine that I had while I was studying at Talbot, He is a distinguished professor of the New Testament at Biola University, outlined three marks of the disciple of Christ. The first is abiding in Jesus' liberating word. He says to abide in Jesus' word means to find our definition of success in him. That is, we find our sense of success, of worth, in what he says is of true value. He could summarize it by saying, seek first, 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The second is living with Jesus' love. Quote, we must exemplify love in our personal and corporate lives, and we must provide a setting in our homes and churches where love is nurtured, where it is central in our relationships, and where it is reflected in all our activities. Living with Jesus' love. And the third mark of a disciple is we are to bear fruit. We are to bear fruit. This is not only the bearing fruit of the Holy Spirit as outlined in Galatians, but it also means that we are bearing fruit in the lives of others as well. We will see the marks of Christ growing in their lives as well. We might think from reading this passage that this was the disciples' first exposure exposure to Jesus. In reality, because we're talking about a very small geographical area here, it's likely that they've already heard about Jesus, maybe even interacted with him a few times. So when we come to this section, their hearts may have already been stirred. They've already been prepared. So discipleship isn't a one-time event. It doesn't just happen suddenly, automatically. It is an ongoing process that transforms our lives from the inside out. Our inward transformation leads to outward changes in behavior, in thought, in speech, in desires, in motivations. Those things don't necessarily disappear altogether. These men still knew how to fish, and would be tempted to return to fishing. I still like to watch the Lakers and the Chargers. But those desires no longer have a grip on my life the way they did in the past. How has your life changed as a result of Jesus' call on your life? How have you changed? And when Jesus calls fourthly, he transforms our wrong thinking. He transforms our wrong thinking. Verse 45. Again, the ripple effects of the water start to spread out. And in this verse, Philip goes and finds his, brother, his friend, Nathaniel. And like Andrew sought out his brother, Peter, Philip sought out his friend, Nathaniel, and tells him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus, the son of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what was Nathanael's reply? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can any good thing, can you imagine Nathanael's body language with that reply? You know, maybe there's like a sneer on his lip, like, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Maybe he's got, you know, his hip, his hand on his hip. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He's already made a judgment here, right? He's already decided who this Jesus is. Can, anything, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It's like he's saying, you know, can, anything, can any good thing come out of Compton or Santa Ana or Skid Row? Prejudice has no boundaries, does it? We all have prejudices. The human nature is to think the worst of others to make ourselves feel superior, right? Yes? 
Nathaniel hasn't even met the man yet, and already he has downgraded Jesus' esteem in his eyes. But what does Philip say? The same thing that Jesus said to Andrew and John. Come and see. Come and check it out yourself. See for yourself. Even before Nathaniel has an opportunity to utter a word to Christ, Jesus starts with an unusual compliment, perhaps disarming Nathaniel's skepticism. Pretty clever strategy on Jesus' part, wouldn't you say? Of course, only the Son of God could see directly to a person's heart. Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathaniel asks. We've never even met before. Jesus' very curious reply, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. And immediately, Nathanael proclaims, You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now, why would Jesus' comment elicit such a strong response from Nathanael? What's so special about Jesus seeing Nathanael under a fig tree? We have to understand that the fig tree is an important symbol of the nation of Israel. To Israelites, it was the symbol of fruitfulness and blessing. Oftentimes, rabbinic students would sit under a fig tree to pray and to meditate on scripture. And rabbinic students were reminded that they had not truly prayed until they had prayed for the Messiah to come. So when Jesus called Nathanael an Israelite with no deceit, a true Israelite, and he says that he saw Nathanael under the fig tree, in in Nathanael's mind, Jesus is identifying himself and proving that he is the one and only Messiah, King of Israel. In an instant, Jesus challenges and changes Nathanael's wrong thinking about who he is, about who Jesus is. And when Jesus calls us, he will change our wrong thoughts as well. We will see Jesus for who he truly is, the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. These five men, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, had their lives changed. When Jesus called them, they began to understand not only who they were, but indeed, more importantly, who he was. According to John the Baptist, he is the Lamb of God. Andrew declared him the Messiah. Philip said he was the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. And Nathanael declared him Son of God and Messiah, King of Israel. These are four unique ways that Jesus calls us. Andrew, through the preaching of John the Baptist, Peter, through the witness of his brother, Andrew, um, Philip, through the direct call from Christ, and Nathaniel, through overcoming his prejudices and seeing the living God before him, and also resulting in four unique testimonies about who Jesus is. But finally, Jesus refers to himself in yet another way. He tells Nathaniel, Because I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? 
you will see even greater things. Truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is an obvious reference to the Old Testament story about, that, about the dream that Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, had one night when he saw a ladder coming down from heaven and angels descending and ascending up and down from heaven on this ladder. Jesus is proclaiming that he himself, the Son of Man, referencing, referencing Isaiah, was himself the mediator between heaven and earth. Jesus was the means by which heaven and the kingdom of heaven would be made real on earth. When Jesus hung on the cross, the great chasm of sin that divided heaven and earth was bridged. Christ became the means by which we as mere mortals, mere creations of God, could once again enter into the presence and relationship with the eternal and holy God. As Peter proclaimed in the book of Acts, there is no other name under heaven that will save us. Has Jesus called you into a relationship? Has he given you a new identity? Has he challenged you to follow him? And has he transformed your wrong thinking? Is he currently doing all of those things? Discipleship, like I said, is a lifelong process. It isn't a one-time event. Even the first disciples experienced this process that we call sanctification. But there is a starting point. There has always got to be a starting point. Those who have been called or are called will experience this first calling. Maybe that's you here today. I'm not sure. I'd like us to explore something right now, just for a few moments. If we could, I'll just bow our heads. And I'm going to ask Caleb to come up. And as he's singing this song called Come to the Altar, would you just spend a few moments in meditation quietly um, and listen, listen to God's voice? We often have what's, we don't often have what's usually referred to in church as an altar call. And that is an invitation to respond to the call of Christ into relationship. But this morning, I feel like this is a great opportunity to offer to all who are listening to this message an opportunity. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this message. Maybe you've never heard it, that you can actually enter into a relationship with the living God, with Jesus Christ. Or maybe you've heard this message before, but but never gave it a second thought. But today there's something different about hearing this message again. Maybe that is the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, drawing you you closer to Christ. Would you consider this invitation? As Jesus said, come and see. You don't have to take the full step, but maybe God is calling you to take 
A step, the first step. 